Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Jennifer Waits. Hi, I'm Eric Klein. And I'm Paul Riesmandel. Today on the show, we're honored to be joined by renowned radio scholar Michelle Hilms. Michelle is Professor Emerita, Media and Cultural Studies at University of Wisconsin-Madison and has been a longtime proponent of the importance of studying radio and sound, which have often been neglected in the broader field of media studies. Thanks so much for joining us today, Michelle. I'm delighted to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. And and as a fan, you know that we've been talking to lots of academics about radio and audio topics over the years, and people come from a variety of disciplines, and I'm not sure that they would even all agree about a common umbrella term for the scholarly work that they're doing. And and I have a sense that radio and audio is not always the buzziest area of study. And it was really struck by a point you made in a recent article and also a presentation that I saw that sound remains the most analytically neglected of the major modes of human expression, especially when unaccompanied by a visual component, you wrote. So why has sound been neglected by scholars? Well, I think it's, you know, we know, we're very familiar with the concept of the ephemerality of sound, and it is ephemeral. It takes place over time. It it can be captured, but it has to be listened to over time. You can't fix it in a frame. And there's a a term that archivists use that I've seen uh, in the few articles that talk about archiving sound, is that it's non-eye readable. That is to say that, you know, magnetic tape, you'll look at it, it doesn't tell you a darn thing. Whereas, you know, with film, let's say, you can at least, you know, look at the little frames. Um, So it's the fact that it's non-visible, that it's ephemeral, that it takes place over time, I think are the main kind of physical things. But also I think, I mean, I've argued that we do study sound in one field. We have the field of music, you know, music. People have been studying music for hundreds of years. And they have a whole vocabulary for talking about music. Just, you know, I won't even get started. But we don't have anything that uh, we can use comparably to designate a work of sound, a sound work. That's why I'm pushing that term, as, as, you, as you know. Um, because it, it, it is in, implicated in so many different fields. And so I think that that's one reason why, we, you know, the ephemerality of it. And also just because um, we don't have good words to describe things. There's also technology, which I could get into in a minute, too. Well, and and before you do that, maybe describe Mm -hmm. what sound work is, since you're positing this whole new definition or term. Yes, I'm really pushing this, you know. (laughs) I haven't haven't trademarked it or anything, but I'm just hoping that people will will pick it up. Um, I'm I'm saying that we need a term sound work to to refer to those forms of audio expression, creative audio expression, that, um, that uh, draw primarily on, you know, the voice, music, actuality, you know, that kind of panoply of sound that we all work with, um, that is a construction. You know, it's not just like going out and doing field recordings. That is a work in sound, but that's the raw material of sound work. Um, but it's a construction built with artistry and skill and um, very interesting, you know, a, a vocabulary of its own that we see in radio, that we see in podcasting, that we see in audiobooks. That you know, just to expand it a little bit, um, you know, in a lot of things like that, that we we simply don't have the terms to refer to 
what it takes, like what you guys do on a weekly basis, the kind of considerations that you use, pacing, style, tone, um, inflection, you know, things like that. It's, it's could be developed. I hope it will be, but so far it hasn't been. Well, and you know, as you mentioned us, Radio Survivor, you know, part of we, we even changed the way we describe this podcast as radio and sound. And I think that's pointing yeah. to what you're talking about, that with some of these new forms of audio, like podcasting, there hasn't really been terminology. There's so many similarities between radio and podcasting, but how do we talk about that sort of all together? And I think sound is a helpful way yes. to do that. And is, is that part of the reason with these new forms? Is that part of the reason that you were kind of itching for a new term? Yes, completely. And I have to admit, I'm one of the people who sort of runs radio and podcasting together. Not that I think they're the same. In fact, you know, you could talk about how different it is to do live radio or any kind of radio as opposed to podcasts. But still, I I would like to kind of embrace that whole field and say that it's more alike than it's different. And um, to be able to speak about them as, you know, kind of a continuous effort towards some kind of, you know, excellence and achievement, you know, in this audio field that we just don't have a critical vocabulary for. We don't have critics. I mean, we're getting a little bit. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, for instance, the New York Times is taking podcasting much more seriously these days. It runs some critical articles and reviews podcasts, which it never did for radio. There's now a podcast academy as well which has recently formed in the last year and they will be having the Ambies, which is the pod. Oh, great. And, and, it, and, and it's formed in the similar way as the uh, you know, Ocean Picture Association of Arts and Sciences um, and, and the Grammys panel so that it is professionals within, within the industry then uh, voting on these sorts of things. So I think, I think, we, are, I think we are seeing that, exactly. And, mm-hmm. and um, in a way that, you know, I've... I feel like, though, radio was at one point treated critically, but we're going back a very long time, aren't we? Yes, we are. No, it's uh, interesting. I've uh, re- did a little research on that. Like, where, when did radio criticism start, and you know what happened to it? And essentially, it really wasn't until the 1940s when you start to get um, the first radio critics writing in newspapers and magazines. Um, and there are several of them whose names I will not recall off the top of my head right now. Um, who you know were read widely. Their their columns were. Uh, covered were um, syndicated all over the United States and they reviewed the shows that were on the air they made criticism of radio as a field um, but just as that was getting started in the after the war in the late 1940s you know the other big medium that kind of came strutting onto the stage and took over that would te- be television and uh, very soon after that the radio columns shifted to television and that was sort of the brief you know, glorious life of, of radio criticism in the United States. Now you have some place like Britain where they have, the BBC has its own in-house magazines. I mean, they, they've, had, they've had a magazine called The Listener since the oh, early 30s, I think at least. And, you know, they have regular critical reviews of radio shows that the BBC produced over the years. It's great. You know, we have nothing like that in this country. And, and I think most countries don't. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting that you're talking about the popular press and 
and that there were these and there were these radio listings in newspapers regularly and yes and 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 also columnists who would write about radio news and I think Paul mentioned this you know you're seeing less and less of this now in the newspapers and I don't even know if there I, I feel like I keep seeing the radio columnists that I was aware of um, in the past decade or so seem to be disappearing um, so you're not so even, even the media columnists are disappearing yeah. yes yeah. they right. are you're right oh and I'd like, like, I mean I'd like to talk about the term sound work just because um, mm-hmm. it's very exciting to me because I've often I mean there's I, I'm the reason I'm interrupting now is that I think there's two kinds of radio and I think even the kind that gets the most attention from critics that I have noticed on you know there's there's a gathering together voices to talk to each other to record conversations and those conversations might be um, in uh, might be edited they might be structured but they still mostly exist as uh, sharing voices um, a conversation and and that's also maybe the easiest to um, to critique in a magazine or newspaper setting but why I'm interrupting why I'm so excited about the term sound work is that um, it gives it gives form to an idea that I've struggled with now for my entire uh, life in radio is that I finish a piece of uh, creativity that is entirely in the realm of sound I take I take so I'm just speaking of myself as an artist in as a radio editor you take all these voices and you take all these sounds you take the music and the choices that you make as an artist and they all go into um a piece of technology these days a computer and and then when you're done there's no word for what you've just uh, sh- trying to share with the world um i you know it's it's a radio collage it's a it's a piece of um audio work i've i've often uh, used the word um a piece my piece is completed um, it just so, kind of comes from music, right? I mean, I think that's, yeah. that's or 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 it comes also in some extent from the visual arts. You call a painting a piece or a, mm-hmm. a, a, a carving a piece, right? But but yeah, it feels like yeah, we're steal not stealing, but we're borrowing that term because mm-hmm. we we didn't have one. Yeah, and that's it's too unspecific to sound, right? It, it doesn't say what we needed to in terms of you know this particular medium, which I think is you know deserves it. It's deserved it for what a hundred years now. <laughs> Shouldn't we have our own term? <laughs> I think we should. Exactly. Um, yeah, but I mean and also because when you have that, you can start to talk about what makes a successful piece to use. You know, to go back to that in terms of skill, like what kinds of skills you're using, what kinds of of um, uh, elements go into making up a really effective, moving, you know, stimulating sound work. And I think we just don't have a vocabulary for those things. And do you think, I think I know the answer, but by coming up with a vocabulary, is that the first step to getting more people to study sound? And and why is it important to study sound? It's funny asking you these questions because we're all sort of in agreement that sound is worth studying, but I'd love to hear your answer about why sure. it's important to study sound. <laughs> well, you know, it has been, I mean, look at the role that radio has played across the last hundred years. I mean, in terms of its social effectivity and its impact on world events, I mean, all that kind of stuff, but also on people's everyday lives and on what a creative medium it's been. They started from nothing. 
um, you know, there was no way to speak to people across, you know, large distances en masse uh, in the in the past, way back then, uh, before radio was invented, um, and came up with these formats, these genres, these styles, these practices that, uh, you know, were incredibly effective in drawing people to this field of audio uh, uh, culture um, and setting up all kinds of things that later got carried into podcasting and, and many other things. Relationships with other art forms, with theater, with music, obviously. So, for instance, I, would, I don't consider, I don't uh, lump music itself in sound work, but musical presentation, how music is presented, whether it's on, you know, the... Uh, you know, a, a variety show on old radio, or um, on the on by a DJ, or whatever. I mean, presentation that is sound work, uh, and it takes skill, and it, it's a it's a new form that you know developed in the nineteen twenties and thirties. So that's just to take one example. Um, so you know, it, and if I could make a slight divergence here, when you think of it too, it, it's when recording started to become possible that. Uh, easily, much more easily possible than it had been, is when we get the first radio criticisms. You could record things on magnetic tape after the war. They had that technology. You could go back and listen to it. You couldn't do that before. And I really don't think, as I, I don't think I said in that piece, but another piece I've written, has any medium gone through the awkward and non-compatible transitions that audio recording has, you know, from shellac discs, you know, to uh, wax discs, shellac discs, reel-to-reel tape, cassette tape, um, you know, it's just one after the other, all of them non-eye readable <laughs> and, uh, you know, therefore obscure. So, so it's really when radio starts to be able to be, re- to, to be recorded and preserved and listened to again that you start getting radio criticism. And I think that, of course, then the digital thing happens. And, you know, now we're in a whole different universe. We really are. So th- this is why, too, sound work. Why now? Because of the uh, digital possibilities that we have today. Well, And there is this moment, I, 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 I believe, when to some extent there's a co-mingling of radio as, as an ephemeral art and radio as something more fixed, right? Still not eye-readable, right? E- either because at times uh, radio programs could be distributed to consumers via uh, via record and later on other other media, you know, and I think, you know, even as late as, say, the 70s, there's like the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which was a syndicated actual radio hour, but also compiled onto, onto records. But also, you know, before even the 1940s, but but not for consumers, radio was recorded onto at least transcription discs, you know, mm-hmm. for storage. But then many syndicated programs were also distributed on a fixed media, on, you know, tape, on a record, you know. And these are sort of, they were semi-ephemeral, and they were treated ephemerally, I think, in the time. Yeah. That, you know, radio stations, if they got, you know, this week's America's Top 40 on LP... That wasn't something which they necessarily held on to. Often, <laughs> and they could be recorded over, many of them. They just would record over them again. Over the tapes, yeah, if it was a tapes. But often some of these programs were on LPs, you know, mm-hmm. an actual vinyl disc, and they would just toss them in a the dumpster, give them away, DJs would take them home, and things like that. Well, And, what, uh, and when, tape, when tape enters the scene, it also offers uh, people who make this stuff a new, a new way to, to, to remake time, to, to bring it back, to remix it. 
Right. To um, edit. You really to, couldn't edit. Yeah, to edit it, mm-hmm. to remix it, and to um, to blend more than more than one sound at a time uh, together, which mm-hmm. is really the basis of of all of all of this sound work stuff that we love to listen to. Mm-hmm. Ah, just keep using that word. <laughs> well, what's, oh, it's, yeah, it's, what's interesting it's, it's, to me in thinking of now. it in, in this way, right, is is you know you, you sort of mentioned ephemerality up at the top, right, and that you know that ephemerality combined with it not being i-readable has caused it to be considered differently ultimately uh, because it requires. Um, you know, definitely requires the proper playback apparatus if it is recorded, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which which may or may not work. Uh, and, you know, w- yeah. cross compatibility, all sorts of things that, that can come into play. Uh, you know, standards can be important um, in that way, and that we have. You know, you know, if we take your moment of of easy magnetic recording, you know, in the late forties. Now, you know, we have eighty years to get to this to this moment that you're marking where we we all kind of have mutually compatible audio devices right really you know aside you know that that not just that not just playback because you might have said in 1965 most people had an lp record player right, right. so they, most people had a playback device maybe um, but that can record and playback and and you can store them, you can keep them, you can go back and listen again. Uh, you can make your own, you know. I mean, it really is. This digital moment has been the thing for sound. And I think we're at the dawn, really, of this new sound era. It's it's so incredible to think about, you know, being a kid and how exciting it was to get a tape recorder and, and, and tape things and play them back. And now now we all have that in our pocket with our smartphones, Um it's just amazing. And, and even in the early days of smartphones, it was hard to get things you recorded on your phone out of your phone. And now you can just text them right mm-hmm. away. Um, it's very different. And well, and in the context of all that, with your idea about sound work, you know, we also know that there's this, there's this rise in, in a new field called sound studies. So how does all that fit in? Well, I think, again, it's really based on the fact that, you know, we can capture sound and we can, you know, save it and um, go back and listen to it and analyze it, you know, in more depth. Um, and thank God, you know, some people had the the the, the moxie to, uh, you know, take those vinyl records and record them onto a vinyl tape. And the vinyl tape, I mean, I hate to think how many generations have gone into some of the radio stuff that I listened to when I was writing on radio early on. They were pretty bad, actually. But they, you know, engineers and various people had just been, you know, re-recording them from one medium to another. And um, Jennifer, I've forgotten the question you asked me. I'm sorry. Oh, well, well so we've been talking about sound work. And there's also this this area of study called sound studies so so Mm -hmm. what is that how did that come to be and and i feel like sound studies is on the rise is that correct there certainly seem to be more and more programs uh, that are teaching sound as part of you know media studies or whatever and and also in you know there's that great documentary um unit at uh uh, duke uh, is it duke or unc i forget yeah it's duke yeah it's at yeah duke Uh university yeah Um, where they they produce radio 
Yeah, with John B. Yeah. And, you know, so that's great. It's in, a, in, in history departments, um, in, you know, in anthropology. Uh, they've used recordings for a long time. But so this, you know, this, there's this area of where sound and its, its uses are scattered across a lot of disciplines. But we're coming to a point now where, you know, th- people are noticing that they're using the same technology. They're reaching out to similar audiences. They just have this platform now that has brought people together. So I think sound studies as a field has grown. Um, I have to say, you know, uh, as an academic, I started out in film studies. And of course, film sound was another area where sound studies, you know, got its start. Um, and the very first dissertation on radio won the, the Society for Film, the ma- I'm sorry, the major um, professional organization in my field is the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, where you go and present papers and students, you know, can submit, you can submit, uh, they present awards for scholarship. The first dissertation to win in radio, that was a radio topic, happened, uh, let's see, four years ago now. That was uh, Andrew Bottomley. He was my, I have to say, he was my advisee. And I was very proud of that moment because it was the first one wow. in all the years of uh, you know studying media for radio. In, in like get. 2016 yeah. and 2017. <laughs> Amazing. That's right. You know, nearly 100 <laughs> years into the medium. Right, exactly. So anyway, we'll that's have... just a small marker, but I thought it was a really great one. Yeah, that's incredible. And... And we've had Andrew on the show, so we'll definitely mm-hmm. put links to that in the show notes. Great. Um, you know, definitely amazing to hear about that. And, and I was lucky to go to that Society for Cinema and Media Studies conference this year. And it was oh, it was a thrill to see so many papers dealing with audio. And like you mm-hmm. mentioned, across many different disciplines, too, which is exciting. It's very interdisciplinary and and maybe maybe take us back to when when you were doing your graduate work in film studies. Is that when you started to think more about sound as being and, and were you a renegade for thinking about sound as a film scholar? Well, I would say, I mean, people had been thinking about film sound, but actually the kind of weird thing that I did that people regarded as very odd and not necessarily good was I thought that there was a continue a continuum between film and television. I mean, nobody was studying. Television studies was also very new back then, so that's a whole other field that arose. And I first started just thinking, okay, well, how can I relate film and television together? Well, pretty soon I realized that if you're going to study television, you got to go back to the period of radio because that's where all of those genres and forms and um, you know uh, uh, just everything that made television happened in radio. Now, I was born, I had, I'm going to say this on the air, in 1953, when uh, that's when the freeze ended and television first came into households in a, in a big way. Um, I can remember a time when I listened to old-time radio. I mean, I, I was always a television kid, and I knew nothing about radio. But I started to, um, you know, get into, I needed to get resources. I wanted to study it. And you may never have heard of, oh, there, you couldn't go to archives and find radio material. Instead, there were certain collector organizations that just had made a hobby of, you know, gathering old radio shows. One was called Spurdvac. Have you ever heard of it? No. Tell us not, more. Not Sperm Bank. <laughs> Spurdvac. It stands, stands for the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio, let's see, uh, comedy, oh, no, I'm getting it wrong, uh, 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 radio adventure, comedy, and drama. I think I did the wrong, but you can re- you can rearrange those words and get those that acronym. They still exist. They still are an organization out in uh, Southern California. They had been collecting radio programs for a long time, mostly uh, well on cassette. 
to get them, I had to consult a binder, a printed binder of programs this thick with numbers. They all attach to them. Fill out a form. I could, you could request like five tapes at once. Send it out to California with a box of blank cassette tapes. A few weeks later, you'd get your box back, and it would have the shows that you requested. Usually, the shows you requested, sometimes not. Um, and it was that was my resource for studying radio. And so th- that made me realize <laughs> that there were some issues if you were going to try to do radio studies. Um, but that was, you know, certainly for for me, that was the dipping the toe in the water. And people were like, you know, well, you know, why you're in film? Why are you studying radio? <laughs> You got to admit they had a point, <laughs> but um, it you know it, it went on from there, and I was one of the, you know people pushing SCMS all those years too to let not only television in, which they finally did when they added the M a few decades back, but then also you know getting uh, them to admit that sound work you know <laughs> as I now call it was its own category. I I love that you that you went back to radio to understand the genres that were appearing on television mm-hmm. and. And we've talked to Jennifer Highland Wong on the show about her work and in studying podcasts. And, and she definitely felt the need to go back to radio because so many of the forms we see in podcasting come from radio. So absolutely, this tradition is so important. Mm-hmm. But podcasting is developing its own new forms, too, which I find really exciting as well. You know, I mean, there are some things that you can do, although, tel- you know, old radio and television is serial. It's a serial medium. Um, podcasting, you know, is even more so. I mean, there just there are no limits to the seriality. Uh, it seems of po- you know, and also of other forms of digital serialization. But um, just to be able to, um, you know, to create really long form audio drama, you know, it's not just the Lux Radio Theater anymore, you know, where they adapted a movie, you know, one a new one each week. To to, to be able to do these uh, long running dramas, it, it, that's a new form. It, it hasn't been done before. Um, poetry has been read on the radio, but when you now look at some podcasts that do kind of spoken word, poetry, music, you know, putting it together, that's a new form. And that's a form that podcasting is inventing. So, and this kind of, this kind of program too, talking heads even, I mean, that's a very old format, but there are things that you guys can do with this kind of, you know, podcast that again, you know, it's, it's new, you're inventors. And as you're talking about these new forms, do you feel like there's enough study of all the new forms of podcasting, for example? Where where are the gaps in scholarship right now? Mm. Well, I mean, we hardly had time to develop anything that looks like a unified field. I mean, it's just a lot of people doing different things. But um, it is interesting. I mean, one place you can kind of look for an indication of where it might be coming together is that the Peabody Awards now you know, have, they, they've been uh, awarding podcasts, Peabody's. And I don't know if you're familiar with the distinction there, but, you know, that's the organization that gives um, awards not for popularity or a certain kind of industry excellence, but for more uh, lasting cultural and social and also educational um, media. They've been doing it since the 40s. And um, so they've, they've been incorporating podcasts into their awards. And I think for about, oh gosh, maybe, I think Serial was the first podcast to win a Peabody Award. Um, but there have been a lot more in different categories, too, besides that kind of that long form documentary, of course, has become a you know incredibly popular uh, format on 
uh, in podcasting. So, so it is happening. There are places where it's happening. I think, you know, just uh, talking like this as we are kind of this meta kind of podcast, you know, a podcast about podcasting or a podcast about sound. I mean, that's a sign of, you know, a field progressing. We're so meta. Yeah, I wonder, <laughs> you are. <laughs> I wonder if there's a way to talk because I, I still want to um, still want to celebrate my favorite my favorite work to do and it's the weirdest it's the weirdest category to try to search out to seek out like i know it when i hear it but it's not i i can't think of a popular uh a popular downloadable show that that celebrates this kind of work and it's the you know it's the experimental documentary of sound it's it's when it's 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 when a lot of editing and thought and blending and it's very musical as well but you know with field well, recording the, like there's like a mainstream mm-hmm. edge to that mm-hmm. right well, i think radio lab probably yeah. is, is 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 you know yeah you just right. broke I mean, my heart though paul <laughs> because, well, because but because it it, is, I, I don't know if I, I agree i agree that the that the that the artistic form of radio lab has has broadened people's perspective of what they're what they can hear but radio lab is still Deeply invested in telling a story with a, you know, in 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 being a magazine article, a a more linear story as opposed to a story which, right, which which is more experimental or or elliptical or I'm I'm not sure I'm using any of the right words. But you're right. But but. Jad Jad Abumrad as a composer with his with his tiny little pieces of sound and the way he the way he creates uh, sound compositions that that enhance the the narrative of science on radio lab it's, it is a good example um i'm thinking more of just when just just when when these sound works are just more evocative of of something a little more harder to pin down and mm-hmm. and i don't even know um and they they I, i'm i'm assuming based on conversations that we've had on radio survivor recently in, in the last couple of years that there's a um that some of this is coming out of more like gallery spaces and museums and the art world. Um, but I also know that, that like Radiolab, every once in a while on national public radio, like somebody really, um, somebody really puts in the work to, to create a new piece of sound work, uh, that, um, that changes the way we can hear things. You know, it's, it's an experimental documentary for radio. And I'm wondering, I mean, I'm by necessity, I'm having trouble even well, informing the question because I, because it's and it has cro- like some of what you're saying has crossovers with things like transmission art right. and sound art mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so yeah Michelle if you could touch on that and I know you've been listening to all of our recent episodes too so maybe you even have thoughts brewing based on these conversations we've had about transmission art and sound art mm-hmm. and what Eric is describing as these more experimental audio pieces. Well, I have to admit that um, I have, this is not an area I paid a lot of attention to in the past, although I was glad it was out there. And I've just really been touching on the, you know, the surface of what you guys have been doing recently. But, you know, there were, I mean, there have been, there certainly is a history of experimental audio that has not been written. Uh, There was this crazy guy at the BBC back in the early 20s when everything was going out live. And uh, he um, came up with this way of recording. Well, the BBC did this where they had, rather than have people in a studio and, you know, doing a live 
performance that was recorded as a show, which became the norm, they had like a number of different studios, individual studios. They had different people in each one, and they had this mixer they had designed especially for the BBC. And he would, you know, pull the, them together and mix these things. And they all went out live. None of them were recorded. They are gone. We'll never hear them. But what a moment, you know. I mean, there are, there are some sort of scripts around uh, in some of the archives. Um, and there's, I mean, does anybody remember, or you guys wouldn't remember, but have you heard of a show that was called Word Jazz that was on yes, NPR? Ken yes, Nordine. exactly. You know, something like that, I think, was a very interesting way of, uh, you know, uh, his, you know, he was, he just would, I don't know how he did it, actually, but can you describe? Wonderful. Can you describe what it sounded like? You know, he would just riff off words. Uh, music would come in uh, sometimes, but kind of, you know, it's like poetry, except, uh, you know, making associations between phrases and words and rhyme. It, you know, I, that's how I would describe it. Yeah, and he, and he multi-tracked himself. So he, much of it was a conversation with himself, often uh, antagonistic yes. conversation with himself. I think, you know, he uh, he released an album in the late 60s, early 70s called Colors. And so each each track was about a color and it was about blue. And I, I won't remember any of it. I'm not going to try to do it. I Olive, don't have his pipes. believe it or not, I started my college radio show this week with Ken Nordine's track did Olive. Oh. And it was, um, and he did paint commercials using oh, wow. those colors. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I, I later worked at um, at Levi's ad agency, and at the time we did commercials for Dockers that was based on on colors, and it had Ken Nordine describing like you know wow. tan, <laughs> gray. Well, I think that's know. how he made his living because I do <laughs> yeah. remember hearing him do the voiceover work for radio commercials in in the eighties. <laughs> um, more traditional work, so not quite as as. Uh, artistic or, or as artful as what he would do for his own show. Um, but, at the, but nevertheless, you know, his pipes are sort of unmistakable. Ah, oh, amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and the I, show ran for, it may even still be running, but, mm-hmm. but it ran for decades because he would sort of also recycle things. Right. So a given half hour could be something he had recorded in the sixties combined with something he had recorded you know, weeks prior, as artists, right. as artists uh, have license to do, right? To reuse. Of course, themselves. that was wonderful. Yes, of and, course, and, and, and you had, and you didn't know that he didn't tell mm-hmm. you. Yeah. There was and no formal presentation of these I mean, things. This is, uh, this and maybe that's a lot like what you're talking about, Eric. Really? Yeah, I, I mean, this is the part of the show where I just want to uh, tell listeners about my love for the the radio artist uh, Don Joyce, who we've celebrated on. Uh, Radio Survivor. Now, um, we we talked about Don Joyce. He happened to pass away uh, sometime around episode six of Radio Survivor. He was. Oh. Uh, uh, I can. I, I had the opportunity to meet him when I worked at KPFA. Don Joyce had a long running Thursday night, late night, long, uh, dark. <laughs> you know, we, we've talked a lot on Radio Survivor about the power of radio at night and how it's much more of an experimental time for listeners. And Don Joyce. Um, would create radio collages that were around three hours long, four hours long, the length of his show. Uh, A lot of them were studies on certain topics, like perhaps the sound of radio from from 1962. And he would share with his listeners um, a collage that would um, 
in some ways at the beginning resemble the work that all DJs create, you know, mixing uh, different music tracks with voice. But Don Joyce also um, uh, allowed for a density of edits, and it was all uh, relatively live on the air, but also uh, uniquely... um, I learned from a documentary that we screened and then when we spoke with uh, the filmmaker, uh, Don Joyce worked a lot with cassette tapes. Like, he would spend the entire week preparing for that week's show by uh, editing down material on various cassette tapes. It actually lent lent itself to the signature sound of his show, which is uh, cassette tapes dubbed multiple times uh, off the television sometimes. So, so Michelle, you, you may be aware of Negative Land. Uh, are you, are you no. aware of Negative Land? Okay. I'm not. So, I'm writing so it down. Yeah. He was a member of Negative Also Land. Don Joyce. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. But, and, okay. and, and so the and so the in many ways the band as they such as they are formed around this show. Right. For which for who for which uh, Don was the, the principal and okay. the and the fulcrum. Uh, and they would they went on to, to release albums. Collage, uh, collages of, with theme, oh. themes and and negatively yes, fascinating because it's it's a little culture bit, jamming if you've ever right. you know and it's heard also about culture jamming you know negative land is an alternative music you know recording artist they release CDs it kind of makes sense in that frame but hmm. Don Joyce's show was was four hours long and but what what really struck me when we watched the documentary about him was we got to see his home and in his home he has massive wall sized collages that he created he was also a visual artist and these collages were uh, cutouts from magazines uh, pasted together in ways that were gorgeous and meaningful you know taking taking little snippets from the photographs and magazines and collaging them together to create a large impression and it occurred to me as soon as I saw it that well that's that's exactly what he's doing on the radio his four hours of radio is the exact same art as his wall of cutout paper collages but one one we can see and one also has i think i guess i'll I'll try to form this into a question to 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 stop my my um, to stop spewing my love for don joyce in the microphone and have a question for our guest um the his his collages are related to to painting and you can you can there's a whole history right of of galleries showing the work and museums having paintings on the wall. His radio show is four hours long, and he pretty much invented that strange format. Like there was no, there's no language. There's no, uh, there's no gallery show. There's no, uh, there's no history of what he was doing. It's, I mean, it's why I'm passionately telling listeners about it now instead of like pointing you towards, you know. The, the comprehensive history of Don Joyce. What was the name of the documentary? Do you remember? Yes. I will look it up. Thank you. I'd like to know. I'd like to see that. Um, da, 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 da. Oh, well, here, let me ask this question. Have you heard, have you heard George's podcast? It's a t- podcast called, Have You Heard George's Podcast? Mm. Have you... Okay, it won the Peabody Award two years ago. It's from Britain, a, a black British resident of London, a guy who's a poet and who does poetry and talking and riffing and you know music. And it's a really interesting thing. And I, I was uh, glad that it uh, got the Peabody. Let's see. I guess that I guess it was two years ago now. Um, I think it's in that genre. I don't know. I don't know because I haven't heard Don Joyce. And I'm looking forward to it. But uh, 
yeah, I think there's just you know, there's this whole yeah. What we'll do we make call sure that? To put, we'll make sure to put um, comprehensive links into the show notes for today uh, to oh, share with you, yeah. Michelle Himes, as well as uh, with Thank our you. listeners because that's you know, what I need. Um, it, it, one of the wonderful things about Don Joyce is uh, the sounds of his show, which the number of hours uh, that are available um, that were available out in the ether. Um, a lot of them now are archived on archive.org and. Mm. Uh, entirely available to be listened to. Um, I mean, here's here's a question, perhaps. Um, and one of the reasons why Don Joyce's work might be more difficult to to wrap your head around is that he's stealing everything. He's repurposing it. Yeah, and I, I mean, yeah, it's 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 a. Um, I wonder if that has dampened the acceptance of sound as a at, mm. because of how. You know, if you quote, if you quote something in writing, there's there's less. You have of a footnote. A, yeah, there's yeah. less of a concern about about licensing the work. I guess I don't know. Yeah, and this is you know sampling and mm-hmm. and yeah, definitely talk about talk about that, Michelle. Well, I, I mean, this might be a little more a- academic of a turn than you might most people might be interested in but I gotta say and just today I was experiencing this frustration again if you're somebody who writes scholarly stuff and you know and where you want to give credit to other people for their work so you have things like footnotes and citations and all that kind of stuff nobody has figured out how to do that with audio work there is no set format for even a radio show for like you know and you know there's this question i this word i I didn't even know what this word meant for a long time but now i use it all the time metadata what is the relevant data that you put into a footnote or a reference or whatever that designates what's important about an audio work I mean, yes, in some cases you have a clear, you know, author, but then, you know, and you might have a a show name, but then how do you get in all the other things that are relevant to really explaining it? And I think this is something, I don't think anybody is like going saying, we've got to have audio metadata. I mean, I don't see that as banners. Archivists. (laughs) Yes, archivists are. Yeah, yes. (laughs) And -hmm. because there's even a project at at University of Wisconsin, I believe, which is uh, all about podcast preservation. And I know that that's certainly one of one of the topics uh, that they that they consider very closely is that metadata mm-hmm. because if you're going to preserve you need to be able to find yes and find and, and what you are you going to look for yeah right and what people look for now is different from what people were looking for when stuff started to get archived and you know and so on yeah, those are, that's uh, Eric Hoyt and Jeremy Morris, my former colleagues at Wisconsin. I have to give them a shout out because this podcaster um, is really a wonderful um, uh, uh, tool that they're building. It it totally gets at what you were talking about at the very beginning of our conversation, Michelle, about how radio hasn't been studied because it's not visible, and and having that metadata helps make it visible. Mm-hmm. And just and preserving the names of people. I mean, I don't want to get. I don't think that's everything, but uh, there are so many people who worked in this field that are you know totally unknown, um, and that's part of the being an ephemeral medium too. You know, I wanted to kind of take a step back out of the academy, if I can, and, and I'm curious what function, what impact using a term like sound work, establishing sound work has for now all of these folks who are doing sound work 
If we go back 20 years and you wanted to get a job in radio at the turn of the century, one, it was hard because they were going away. (laughs) DJs were being fired left and right. Uh, Commercial radio was doing less and less radio journalism. There were fewer local shows, local, you know, even say local talk shows, local uh, things like that. I mean, the the whole... the whole concept of, of people having creativity in their profession as radio, there was there was no category anymore. Right, the refuge was was public radio, <laughs> but even that was a sort of rarefied. There just simply were fewer jobs available uh, because it, it, the standard was still fairly straightforward, if if you will. You know, just just uh, typical actuality reporting and. We go now, if you'd asked me in 20 years, where will there be, you know, an explosion in jobs in sound, I'd, I'd, have, I'd have honestly probably laughed. I, I would have thought it was not likely given the way I could see things going. The, the sort of uh, explosion of creativity that, that uh, podcasting helped to light, and, and especially light with younger generations now deciding they're interested in, in sound work, whether they know that's what it's called mm-hmm. or not. Um, you know, has, has, has not only just uh, increased the number of people who do it, but the, the number of people who can do it for a living or at least part of their living, right? Who, who, who only are not have to doing it, at, are left to doing it as a hobby or something they, they squeeze in. So how does, how does uh, sort of forming a discipline around it, how does that impact the, the sort of uh, everyday instantiation? Well, I think these things all go together. I mean, I think that um, you got to have, it really helps to have critical criticism because this helps people to understand like what's going over well, what people are really appreciating and what they're hearing. You know, it helps to kind of, uh, you know, not that it all has to come externally to the field, but just a sense of, you know, how things are working and what is being valued, then, you know, that gets into the way that people are trained and the things that they're going, you know, after. Um, And I think that has to do with scholarship as well in terms of setting up, well, you know, here's where this came from. Here's how this technique has worked in the past. I'm, I'm sort of going off track here, but I do think it's really important for people who are working in the field to have a sense that there is a continuity with work that has gone before them, people who are struggling with the same issues of how to effectively, you know, communicate in various kinds of sound, and to, you know, get other audiences to understand, you know, why was this so good, you know, and, and, you know, what made this so good, just to build appreciation. You know, and I think that I think that the virus this last year has helped because if you've been reading about all of these, you know, theater groups that have gone, you know, onto audio production and, uh, you know, audio being the kind of thing that you can do, you know, while you're isolating, right? You can you know, do creative things. I think that's boosted uh, the whole um, field of, of sound work a little bit, oddly. I tend to agree with you. And, and I think both Jennifer and I were in graduate school at that same point in which the Academy was starting to take television seriously, for instance. Yeah. It was taking popular culture seriously beyond maybe, you know, film was always sort of permitted in theater and that, and then in that turn of of popular culture being being taken seriously as something that, that, that one could study. And I, I see, I believe I see at least, and, and, and love anyone to correct me or check me, that I think I see the influence of that turn 
in the television we see today. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know that you have something like the like the like a Mad Men even or mm-hmm. a lot of television shows in the last 15 years that have you know we've you know the sort of called the new peak tv that sort of began to break with some of the 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 forms required of traditional broadcast even though a lot of them started in a broadcast like scenario right um a breaking bad etc um well even i mean even the turn where you see actors who would have only appeared in film who are happy to appear on television now. Like, that's another indicator of what you're describing, Paul, that that television, you know, television used to have sort of, uh, I don't know, not as, it was seen as not as... Um, not yeah. as serious. Not as right. serious. Not as nearly. And I see that, and what I see in the sort of writing about television, criticism, if you will, but criticism writ much writ broadly, right? Not not as formal as we're criticizing this particular television, but the way that it seems like fans engage at a very articulate level with the mm-hmm. shows they like reeks to me of academic criticism, okay. you know, of something that, that might have, in a lot of ways, you would have only read of in, in a journal or a, a um, you know, something like a Paris Review, you know, which, which has more popular kind of intentions even if even if it you know rather than a strictly scholarly uh kind of uh tome and i wonder then right does that you know i I think i'm seeing people engage with with sound with podcasts in particular that way more popularly outside Mm -hmm. of outside of the academy and and i and i'm and i'm i'm seeing i i feel like i see like the, the generation of scholars coming into sound work now and many of whom we've talked to here on on Rail Survivor are themselves personally more engaged with also creating the sound work and engaged outside. You know, the, the academy is so porous in that way. Do you do you see that? Do you, do you get that perception, Michelle? Am I am I making oh, sense? Yeah. No, absolutely. No, I think you're you're right. We're sort of at a tipping point now. And I remember going to the, con- the conference of uh, podcasters in Boston. What? gosh, two years ago, it had to be at least um, when we could still go to conferences, um, that was mostly about people working in the field, but they had invited academics in just to kind of try to get that conversation going um, between like, what is quality? You know, what's good practice? I mean, what 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 what's a good podcast? You know, uh, what can we learn from each other? You know, that sort of thing. And I think that's very much happening. I hope it happens more. Yeah, in a way, because I think there's no um i mean there's we don't podcasts by their very nature and as they've come to be up to now are open there's like an open ecosystem of podcasts they're everywhere and so even if you're going to create a a podcast specifically for doing more scholarly kind of work it's going to be accessible to everyone Right, but and, I wanna... and, and, and and much academic work still is is not accessible because it's it's in a journal or it's in books that are very expensive. Oh, oh you're talking about like scholarship going well, audio. Well, and how it is yeah. porous, right? Because I think yeah. that that you know, and, and the internet has, has brought us some of this as well, right? That there are more online journals that are not necessarily require subscriptions, for instance, or mm-hmm. access to an academic library, you know, and and. 
I guess you know I, I'm 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 freeforming this sort of set of ideas that are swirling around in this conversation oh, for me. You're alluding you're alluding though to an episode that we did about academic scholarly podcasts as well. So right. there, there's of the course. public there's with, the public. With, was that Hannah McGregor? Yeah, is that correct? Yes. So who, there's who is the herself a podcaster, hmm. both curating scholarly podcasts, but also. You know, has a podcast right. that po- looks at Harry Potter, possibly called, relevant. Called Witch, yes. please, possibly relevant <laughs> that that she is, um, you know, an older millennial academic who, whose whose academic aspirations as a as as somebody studying it. Yeah, also, she's at UBC. Uh, also, is on the same uh, life uh, is in parallel to her podcast where she's doing a feminist read of of Harry Potter. Uh, you know, in a much more pop culture realm. So yeah, maybe that but is Hannah McGregor's uh, superpower. So exactly. She's ready for this moment. Well, in addition to that is working on coming up with how you have peer reviewed podcasts, right. because yeah. as <laughs> you know, as scholars, a lot of scholars are doing podcasting as sort of uh, public scholarship, but how do you make your podcast part of your, your curriculum, you know, part of your resume. How do you get sort of academic credit in the academy, academy for that sound work? Have you run yeah. across that, Michelle? Have you thought about this idea of peer-reviewed podcasts? You know, I got it. You're, you know, I've been I've been retired from academics now for about <laughs> six years, <laughs> and I think a lot of things are going by me um, because I I um, I'm sure that you're right that we're heading in that direction that there are, are going to be uh, well, it's like. It's hard. It's hard to know how to think about it because, of course, like say with film as a medium, you know, we, we film schools started and people could study actual film production, and that became a part of academics. And there were people who uh, devoted their careers to to writing about that too. Um, it didn't happen so. Well, television journalism is another example. I mean, there's sort of that thread that plays into podcasting as well. But to think about. Um, not just studying podcasting, but actually to studying podcast production, but then using to go into that as part of scholarship. I think I'm interested to hear that this is happening because honestly, that's kind of gotten away from me. I'm going to look up uh, Hannah McGregor's uh, uh, podcast. I link, like Harry Potter too. Link so. in the show notes uh, to, Wait, to, to what, Radio Survivor. To yeah. Unraised What's it called again? What's the title? Oh, her well, her Harry mm-hmm. Potter podcast is Witch Please. Witch Please. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Michelle Helms, since I know you think about this a lot and, you know, you've thought a lot about and written a lot about television and radio and now podcasting. One thing that we always talk about with radio is that it's an intimate medium. And I know you have ideas about podcasting as perhaps also being an intimate medium. So I'm wondering, what is the connection? Is podcasting more intimate than radio? And if so, why? I think it is. I think it's um, it is special in a number of ways, and it can do, go places where radio could never go. And even though radio, you know, is known for its intimacy, that is, you know, somebody speaking to you in your home, you know, in in your private space, you know, from very far away, that kind of intimacy of the voice. Um, podcasting can take that way further. Um, you can not only in terms of the listener who can now preserve, stop, go back and listen to something again, you know, all those things that a, that a, that a, a radio listener couldn't do. 
but can listen to things that couldn't have been on the radio because radio was a public medium too. It was intimate, but it was public. It was speaking out into a room usually where everybody in the family could hear it. So podcasting has taken us down a lot of places where people talk about the special intimacy of the podcast. I think that's true not only in things like, you know, more frank talk about sex and, you know, uh, and other kinds of uh, uh, sort of touchy subjects that you wouldn't hear about on the radio, but also just into experiences of life uh, of intimate aspects of uh, of a wider range of people's lives than radio ever could. You hear about, uh, you know, child abuse, and you hear about, um, that's not a very inspiring example, but you hear about um, issues that could, just could not be brought up before, and now we're hearing about them. And we hear about them intimately right into our ears, you know, by somebody who's speaking to us on that level. So I've actually likened it. It's not so much intimacy. I think there's a certain privacy to podcasting. It's like the confessional, uh, if you happen to come from a Catholic background, where you know you you enter into the space where it's just you and talking to you know somebody is telling you about these intimate details of their life uh, in a way that uh, doesn't happen. You know, and it's it could be a darkened space. You know. Um, it, so I think that I think indeed, a podcasting is a kind of it's a very special medium in that regard. That reminds me a bit, you know, we've had folks, including Andrea Bottomley on the show, talking about early days of podcasting, and and as well as Jennifer Hyland Wong, who I mentioned, um, talking about the connections between blogging and early podcasters. And and a lot of those early blogs were very first-person, confessional, and and you could see that in, in certain aspects and certain genres within podcasting. I feel like podcasting is so broad that you know, we have all these different styles of podcasts. And so in this, in this history of podcasting that we now have, what point do you think we're at now? And do you think we'll see more and more of these very private style podcasts? Is that a really large chunk of them? Do you think that will affect other forms like radio, traditional radio, is traditional radio getting influenced by by these podcasts that are taking things in different directions. I, I think so. I mean, I think you are seeing sh- um, things on radio now, especially on public radio, but not only there, that started out as podcasts but or have ripped, come off from a certain kind of podcast. You're also getting, I mean, we're getting a lot more diversity of voices on the air. We're hearing from people's experiences from, you know, not just the... <laughs> Uh, not that NPR hasn't been somewhat diverse, but, you know, from the kind of mainstream in this country, white, you know, perspective, middle class, um, you know, those kinds of voices are coming onto radio now more if you, especially the kind of radio shows that, um, you know, that can be picked up. Well, most of them can now picked right. up in podcasts. I, mean, I would include, so I do think it's having an impact. I would include that like in the nineties and early two thousands, um, there was a hard barrier for younger voices to be heard on mm-hmm. the air at that oh, time. Yeah. And now, uh, with podcasting, you can you can hear you can hear uh, mm-hmm. young people like you know that's right uh, you know getting to express their voices uh, to large audiences uh, in a way but, that was know, not being done. I'm thinking about that private comment you made, mm-hmm. and and I and I think we can tie that back though to radio because we were talking about late night radio, which True. I think in a lot of ways is more private yeah. because mm-hmm. you know. Well, there's it's fewer people awake, yeah, <laughs> right, and it goes away, right, and 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 right. often the kind of programming, especially talk programming or music and mixed talk programming, like of the sort you talked about on KPFA, Eric, or you know a Joe Frank, right, 
what what tended to be also more private and and the type of call-in shows could be more private kind of talk as well in a way and i think you you see those strands have been pulled into podcasting whether it's whether the the person's knowing it whether the person's doing it know that they're pulling that strand whereas others i think are sometimes self-conscious about it. night podcasts and day podcasts that the documentary (laughs) that i was uh, referring to earlier about don joyce was called how radio isn't done uh, and it was uh, episode number 141 of Radio Survivor back in May of 2018, where we spoke to the filmmaker, wow. uh, I, Ryan Worsley. Yeah, Michelle, I like that yeah. you describe these late night shows as being ephemeral and how that's linked to privacy. And yeah. it makes me think about current, you know, things like Snapchat or Instagram TikTok. stories or posts oh, that, go, that, go away, yeah. that go away and <laughs> that people might post more private I was intimate I was, things if they think it's going to disappear or late right. night you oh. think maybe not that many people are listening so it feels private um, so I yeah I love that insight well I I I think it might have been Paul's actually, but uh, yeah. no, it, no, it, uh, you know, but I'm you're expanding right about, on, on Michelle's yeah. insight of the, of it being private. Uh, Cause I like the intimate. Oh, the ephemerality. Yeah. What yeah. I meant was the yeah. ephemerality, yeah. ephemerality I think uh-huh. is linked to the private. Yes. Yes. You, you all get credit. <laughs> There's a funny thing too, where this late night listening, um, we should be asleep. We should be dreaming. And that's right. You know, that's the most private, uh, art form that there is, is, is our dreams. And when, when we listen to, to late night radio, we're sort of uh, having, you know, we're allowing the artist who creates that sort of, uh, to steer the dream in a way, you know, it, 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 that's, I, I can't, like, you know, Paul referenced Joe Frank, it's very difficult to listen to, to Joe Frank. Listening to Joe Frank in the morning is the wrong, <laughs> is the wrong way to listen to the art of Joe Frank. I think that's a great example of um, well, someone who's- I've gotta say, as a, as a just irredeemable morning person, I, I was never the person who was up listening late at night. Yeah. So I'm just hoping some of those things were actually recorded and will come yeah. back, but I doubt that somehow. <laughs> uh, I was, um, we're in the podcast realm now, so I guess, okay. you know, okay. Joe Frank's has, uh, Joe Frank's next, you know, Joe Frank just passed away also uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, and his website currently functions. It's paywalled where um, his fans can, can subscribe and listen to all of his archives. Um, I'm sure they're also available academically, but they're not available to the general public who's not going to pay for him. So in my little world, um, I just tell people how good he is and then know that they're never going to hear it. It's very, it's a very strange well, place. There's for probably something lurking on the internet. Oh, of course. Archive. Yeah, of course. There is. As, and there's also as, as free, is... there's free downloads on his website, but it's just, yeah, and in, in a way, it's it's a time and place too. I mean, it, it's difficult to to pass on your passion for for a particular piece of radio to to new listeners who might not be, you know, as available. Well, and as far as those archives, I think Michelle, in a lot of ways, things are the same as when you were trying to study radio shows back when you started and it's still really difficult to find a lot of these programs and you know I know you're very involved with the radio preservation task force that is a project of the Library of Congress and these conversations constantly come up about you know preserving all of this audio and often it's in the hands of collectors 
That's right. Yeah, there's a <laughs> that's a very shady history, the history of uh, the preservation of radio in, in, in many places. And the Internet Archive actually has been a kind of a, you know, catch-all place where some of that got preserved. But, um, yeah, I think we're still, you know, still dealing with that issue of ephemerality, of overabundance, yeah. of... Right. Um, lack of a infrastructure you know to really i mean now it's I, mean, I was proud to hear about the what was it podcasting academy have you talked about yeah it? yeah it's called yeah. the podcasting academy and who, and who was starting that could i just ask sorry to yeah so it's those. it's sort oh, of it's a, a group of folks in the industry within within the podcasting industry um uh I, I'm forgetting the names of I should remember the names of everybody who's principals because I know them. But, um, uh, you know, so, so folks who work in commercial podcasting for all intents and purposes. But that is that's inclusive of public radio because public radio podcasts are generally commercialized um, when they're online. Um, so, it, yeah, so then that's basically it. I, I'm formally a member. Uh, I had to have someone vouch for me. I had to vouch say that I was actually a <laughs> member of the industry. Congratulations. Even though I knew the person who was going to be reading the application. You're a real person, not just a voice on the microphone. Right? Well, right. Well, and that, you, that you're actually, you know, engaged in right. the medium, right? You know, it's, uh, uh, which I guess is how, I don't know how all the other academies work. I've never tried to join. Wow. You've got cred. Serious cred. I also wanted to bring into the conversation a very new a new idea. I think that, well, so I have to just make the, I just have to make this very personal. I'm about later on this evening, I will be starting my first online zoom class, uh, doing a cassette hacking with a, an organization in Berkeley, California called Dogbotic labs. And, um, everyone's doing sound work in this class. And I got to read everybody's, um, introduction to themselves and everyone's sort of struggling to define themselves as artists who create sound without um, without there being like a, a roadmap really like and it's it's really interesting how many young people are taking the class and getting to see where they're coming from and um, a lot of people I mean and it's there's a lot of overlap with music and musicians and composers but there really is a different uh, driving artistic like they're they're thinking about their artwork in a way that's different from someone who strictly studies music and you know mm-hmm. is doing music is doing uh, jazz or classical music you know those are the forms that are the most like thoroughly um, documented I guess or you know th- that there's a pathway for for when you start as a student with those art forms, um, so that that's, there's just there does there's an energy in the youth is the point is is mm-hmm. um, they're they're they are thinking about sound and they're creating sound and they're excited about being artists who make sound, and then it's uh, it's also brand new. It's difficult to describe what they're doing or why they're doing or what they or what their goals are. And so I'm I'm going to be exposed to that. I also think it's really useful to think about. Um, both TikTok, which I've been spending more of my time with, um, the artists of TikTok are largely sound artists. It really <laughs> is a, a sound medium uh, more than visual. Like if if you wanted to scroll through the other social medias with your headphones off, silent silent scrolling, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. 
these are these are visual spaces. TikTok, you're not doing it right if you're not listening to the work that people are making. And I think there's a lot. I think there's a um, uh, just a remarkable. I mean, uh, just a just a huge amount of creative energy going into sound work on TikTok. I think people work harder on their soundtracks for their one minute. They're they're starting to get longer than they do on uh, the visuals. Oftentimes, that's a really interesting. And there's also a very interesting uh, format to the website where people are allowed to uh, take the sound of someone else's post and. Uh, and use it as their own and sometimes they can just uh comment on it by lip syncing to that one minute of sound and but oftentimes also i mean it tiktok became uh, uh the biggest story in the news last year for 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 three days when when a group of people all together sang a series of uh duets and they create it, it was the it was the sea shanty moment for tiktok and it was all based on the fact that one person could start the song, post the video, and then the next person could take the sound of it and layer their sound on top of it. So now two people who are um, incredibly good vocalists are harmonizing together across the internet, and then someone else can take that sound and put their spin on it. And so the by the design of this website, you have... Uh, massive collaborations, massive sound collaborations that people are creating, uh, and, and in this particular case, it was uh, everyone was singing a very beautiful uh, sea shanty and a, a, a work song about um, about working on a boat, sung by a Scottish millennial uh, postman during the pandemic. Well, I have to admit to being a TikTok free zone myself. It's delightful. I'm sorry to say, yeah, never, I've never been, uh, yeah, that, but that's not, makes it sound more interesting. It's fun. You know, <laughs> Maybe it's, I'll check I'll, it out. I'll have to confess just as long mm-hmm. as we're... Well, just, and I've never heard sea shanties. Oh, you missed I, this I, entire I, moment? It was like on well, Good Morning America. <laughs> like, it was a big, it was a big deal that week halfway through the mm-hmm. pandemic when sea shanties became hot on TikTok. I, I think that has to be a good thing. Yeah, it was. It was amazing. And it was all um, and it was all because of the sound-focused nature of the website and how they allow users to, to collect you know, other people's work and then repurpose it. Um, that actually sparks a question, um, Michelle. We've talked about this before. Do you, think, do you think there can be viral audio? Boy, I think there certainly can be. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know quite what the implications are. I think that, you know, we probably are seeing that more often than people are realizing because it's, you know, pretty wide open as a space of innovation and creativity right now. I mean, yeah, that gets us to this whole other dimension that I probably am much less qualified to speak about than people who are more experienced in, you know, contemporary media than I am, which is, you know, that, uh, okay, so podcasting and radio have benefited from this new digital freedom for uh, that makes it easier to not only to obtain and to listen and to to capture things but to produce you know to actually you know go into the field um but that takes that gets hyped up a whole other degree when you start talking about being able to freely exchange so um that's that's the view from somebody who's taking the long historical 
uh, perspective here. You've gotten to the horizon of my knowledge. I can't go further, <laughs> but well, I'm glad it, you asked. <laughs> well, and it's a hard question. I mean, it's a hard question that I don't have an answer to either. I think we're in this really interesting audio moment right now with all sorts of social audio things going right. on with things like Clubhouse and, mm-hmm. um, and and Twitter and other platforms have these audio-only tools tools right now well they're not necessarily you know sometimes it's just people chatting yeah um and so you wonder if when all this gets shaken out because there's so many of these companies that have sprouted up and tools that have sprouted up but but you wonder if something emerging from all that might be something akin to twitter where you have Mm -hmm. viral audio which we haven't really seen up to this point i mean we have we have hit songs I guess you could call that viral audio, but um, in the way that you have a meme or right. a Bernie Sanders well, I'll, I'll put image a link. from the election, I'll put a you link know, to the inauguration. I'll put a link to the sea shanty <laughs> meme yeah, in, in like the show notes that. because that 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 qualifies. It was uh, it was big enough to be you know to be uh, sucked into Good Morning America's you know news feed for the morning to share with their listeners. It was a view and. I think one of the interesting things that we, I think, is it's related to podcasts and how special they are is, you know, and the digital the the digital tools that now everyone has. Um, the reason why podcasts can be so exciting and diverse is because the 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 cost of microphones and editing equipment is uh, just sliding so quickly into everyone's hands that it's uh, allowing for all this creativity to burst forth it's the same with um youtube and tiktok like everyone everyone's phone is a uh extremely powerful uh you know canvas for creating sound work um and and more so you know when more so this year than last year because um you know tiktok in particular allows its users to edit on the app so the, so 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 young people just with their phones are able to create very uh, very elaborate sound work to go with their videos, which are also edited. I mean, it's it's really a a filmmaking platform. Uh, and again, because of our COVID nineteen time period, so many homebound creative people. Um, it's a really it's a fascinating. You know, there's plenty of uh, reasons to not be excited about TikTok. Again, <laughs> don't want well, to just sell know, the I wanted website, to, to, but it's to quickly it's great. sort of take that viral audio question and tie it to something that Michelle mentioned earlier about archivists saying that sound is non eye readable, and that seems to be something which is kind of I wouldn't say inherent, but seems to be important in in the types of media that go viral in social media they are eye-readable, right? Whether it's Bernie Sanders in his, in his mittens and hat at, you know, at, at right. the inauguration, you know, and, and maybe the sea shanty situation is uh, an exception, right? It may be the exception that proves the rule, or it might, it might be the exception that breaks down the barrier. We don't, well, we don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, like but, you're saying, Paul, it has visual still well, and, with and, the audio. And, and, and the interesting thing is is that in, in the same way in that in which people do podcasts or release music on YouTube, 
the video is nearly incidental, right? The video is maybe unnecessary, but because the medium is video based, you need you have to add it in order to, to get the audio on there. But the very fact that uh, using a, using a smartphone, the unless you have headphones on at that moment, or and this this includes a computer, unless you have headphones on, the the video or the visual experience is more private than the auditory experience, because you know, we've seen it. We know. I mean, it's happened to all of us certainly when you're scrolling around and all of a sudden your phone is blaring and disturbing all the people around you. Right, or someone on the street who's walking down with their with their phone tinny blaring and stuff, right? And I think that that might be an inhibition to audio sometimes being viral, because you you it's harder. You have to make more of a plan. And I know there are things that there are times when you know using my phone or something, I don't take in some audio because I haven't done it. My you're not my wearing your earbuds all I'm the not time. Wearing my earbuds. But- I don't want to bother all the people around me. Etc. Right? I mean, maybe I'm on a bus, you know, I, and I don't my, want to be that guy. I yeah, right. I I'm, I mean, I'm in I'm in my home more often than I used to be, but I also can speak on behalf of a Gen Z or my 15 year old son. His headphones are in his head all the time. <laughs> all the time. So maybe it's less of a problem. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why the sea shanty TikTok is maybe the you know uh, the 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 crest of a wave that will allow audio to be more viral even if it has to hitchhike you know hitchhike along with with some video content so that it fits the fits the platform although we'll see whether these new audio platforms being rolled out yeah are able to take root the future is unclear (laughs) that's this the magic eight ball (laughs) the future is unclear certainly to me My sincere thanks to our guest on Radio Survivor today, Michelle Helms, Professor Emerita, Media and Cultural Studies in the Department of Communication Arts at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. That is a mouthful. It's not difficult to say. It's difficult to know where the emphasis should go. Professor Emerita, Media and Cultural Studies in the Department of Communication Arts at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. There doesn't feel like there's enough articles. Uh, Speaking of sound and problems, uh, my name is Eric Klein. This has been Radio Survivor. Thank you so much for listening. Jennifer Waits produced this episode. Co-host was Paul Rees-Mendel. So many show notes today in the show notes document because uh, our guest, Michelle Hilms, who's a listener, also uh, let us know uh, the value to her uh, of our show notes. And so... You know, not that we put in any extra effort on the show notes today. I certainly, though, had a few contributions uh, that I've included, uh, including the fact that uh, as I was editing, I realized that the best example of the kind of experimental sound work documentary in the podcast realm that I could come up with uh, was the Kitchen Sisters. The Kitchen Sisters are a pair of creative radio producers from the public radio days who have an editing style that, to me, um, is very evocative of a early 80s uh, public radio style, an experimental tape-cutting, um, you know, um, enthusiastic use of ambient sound effects, and, and not every single actuality or voice 
is given a name or a specific location that you know. You know, um, I think that was the what I was getting at is the style of documentary, if you don't mind a digression here at the conclusion during the credits. The style of the documentary that the radio that that Radio Lab is not is that everything in Radio Lab that you hear is either uh, given a name. You know, every voice that you hear is given uh, an identity, and most of the sentences that are spoken are a part of a narrative stream uh, that is logical. That is a that is a narrative. Um, that you can follow and the sound work that Jadam Umrah does with um, the way he composes with little little bits of 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 sound in his DAW um, it's musical and it's creative and it's always also linked to the narrative uh, I'm the Kitchen Sisters will more often give you voices that float in and away uh, in moments that are more ephemeral and uh, a little more dreamlike. Their podcast is a part, of course, of the Radiotopia Podcasting Network. Radio Survivor is a reader and listener-supported enterprise. To find out more, you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. We love to hear from our listeners. If you have any thoughts about anything that you heard on today's episode or anything else in the Radio Survivor um, you know, uh, in the bowl in which we mix our delicious cakes and pies, uh, please do email us. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. So it's a podcast that you can subscribe to anywhere where you get your time shifted radio. Subscribe on the Stitcher app, on the Apple Podcasts app, on the Google Podcasts app. You can even subscribe to us on Spotify. On behalf of everyone here at Radio Survivor, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.